We're going to look at the story in John chapter 4. So the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John in the New Testament. Chapter 4, a story that you probably are familiar with, uh, Jesus and the woman at the well. And really, this is uh, one of the most beautiful stories about Jesus, the relentless pursuing lover. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, and, you know, while often when people think about what's amazing about Jesus, I think they often think about the miracles or the wise teaching and how astonishing that was. Um, but here, what's most astonishing is the way he refuses to be bound or to be blocked by social barriers. And this is astonishing even to the disciples we're going to see in verse 27. They're just shocked at what he's doing. And I I really think, you know, it's good to look at this story because so often Jesus can just become a little ho-hum to us. It's really important to look at stories like this and dig into them and see that what's going on here is more than just a creative encounter uh, with some woman where he kind of tries to talk to her about the gospel. Um, I, I think he really pursues and breaks through all the ways that she tries to hide and deflect. And I'll just say, that's good news that we have a Savior like that. Because every one of us, <laughs> every one of us is like this woman in different ways. And um, how good it is to know that Jesus... Uh, doesn't take no for an answer. So that's what this story is about. Let's, uh, let's read it. I'm going to read starting in verse 4. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then, His disciples came back. They marveled, that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him, to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? I love that. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another weeps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray briefly. Lord, we do thank you that you are the Savior of the world, and we thank you for the way we see that in this passage. Help us to believe it, not just to see it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, this is a story that, that may be familiar, but I, I want to bring out, you know, some of the, the background to help us understand just how incredible this story really is. Like I said, um, Jesus and what astonishes the disciples there in verse 27 is he's talking to a woman. Now, that would kind of seem kind of crazy to us, but it helps to know some of the background. What are the cultural background? The cultural background actually helps us see that Jesus, in talking to this woman as he does, is breaking through a number of social barriers. What are they? Well, first, she's a woman, and men don't speak to women. Not out in public, not somebody that you don't know like this. She's also a Samaritan. And John, the writer of this gospel, does not assume a Jewish readership for his gospel. So some of these things he has to explain, okay? So he he makes it very clear. Jews and Samaritans don't talk to one another. 
And it, it might be helpful to know a little bit about the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans were people that were brought in um, to Israel after the Jews were taken into exile. So during the exile, not only were, were the Jews taken away, not all of them, but uh, a lot of them were taken away. And then other people were moved in, uh, and then they began to intermarry. So the Samaritans, as far as the Jews are concerned, are half-breeds. They're not pure people. And not only that, but they don't have the right theology either. So the Samaritans believe the first five books of the Bible are God's word, what we call the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? The Jews and the Samaritans both believe that Moses wrote that and that that is scripture. But the Samaritans don't believe any of the other historical books are scripture, nor do they receive any of the prophetical books. So they've got bad theology because they only know a little bit of the Bible. <laughs> I could draw some applications there. I think a lot of people have bad theology because they only read certain parts of the Bible. Um, I don't know if, if anybody's ever, you know, asked you to look up your Bible and see like where there's thumb kind of prints. And almost every Christian I know, like you'll see where on the New Testament, like this little part, but this big part here is usually not um, read much at all. Um, so they're heretics, they're half-breeds. Um, she's also a social outcast, right? There's some kind of story here. And even, even without Jesus being a prophet and having supernatural understanding, he would know that there's a story here. Why? Well, because normally in this culture, the women would come at the very beginning of the day before the sun came out and it got hot and they would draw the water. Remember she says the well is deep. It's hard work. And the women would do this every day. They'd gather water at the well and they would also just kind of talk and catch up and gossip and whatnot, right? The fact that she's there by herself in the hot part of the day, the sixth hour, um, says something. It says that she's a pariah of sorts, a social outcast. And like I said, Jesus doesn't need supernatural power to know there's a story here. It's written all over her. And I think that's important to see here. It, she's not just somebody who needs to understand the gospel and get her theology right. She's broken and bruised and has been taken advantage of, most likely. When it says that she's had five husbands and the guy that she's with now won't marry her, is not her husband. I think a lot of Christians look at that as, oh, she's this wanton woman who's just sleeping around. No, in reality, the way you need to understand that is she's been so abused by the system, particularly easy divorce with no consequences, that people can just use her and discard her. And it's happened to her so many times that no one even has to marry her at this point. She's with a man who's not her husband, which means that she's in an incredibly vulnerable place as far as her social situation, her economic stability, all those 
sorts of things, right? The culture of easy divorce, like our own day, put women in particular in vulnerable positions and they were taken advantage of in this day and age. So I, I think what you need to see here is the way Jesus reaches out to a woman who's not just a sinner, she's also been sinned against. This isn't to deny that she needs to repent and, and put her hope in Jesus. But it is to say sometimes Christians are better at talking about themselves even as sinners than they are talking about how they've been sinned against. It's a really odd thing, I think. But I think even in saying that we're sinners, as hard as that can be sometimes to admit, at least it feels like we're in control. To say that we've been wounded and broken and taken advantage of at times is even more shameful. And I see this all the time in the church, the way people are much more comfortable saying that they're sinners. Sometimes it rolls off their tongue so glibly. And yet to say that I've been broken and abused by the system or by circumstances or by life or by other sinners, sometimes we don't want to go there. But that's who this woman is. And that's who Jesus pursues. That's who Jesus pursues, right? She's lonely. She's ashamed. Everything that she's looked to for safety, security, and love has let her down. But here's the good news. Here's what's so exciting about this passage. She's closer to the kingdom than anyone, than anyone that Jesus has met so far. And she's going to become the first Christian missionary hero. Isn't that awesome? She's going to become the first Christian missionary hero. We must never underestimate how the power of shame can affect us. If you've never thought about shame, you've never talked to somebody about shame, I really would encourage you to do that. Talk to me or Wendy or Etta or, you know, some of the upperclassmen students. Um, shame is such a powerful thing. Dan Allender, a Christian counselor who I think the world of, um, has written powerfully uh, about shame, and, and I wanted to share these words. He says, the dread of being found out is sufficient to fuel radical denial, workaholism, perfectionism, re-victimization, and a host of other ills. But the fear is greater than simply losing relationship. The fear of shame is the terror that if our dark soul is discovered, we will never be enjoyed, nor desired, nor pursued by anyone. Like this woman, this poor woman, is hiding in the middle of the day. By coming to the well in the middle of the day, she's hiding from anyone that would expose her shame. But Jesus is there. It is worth thinking about where you hide. Where do you hide from Jesus? Where do you like to go where you think he won't see you or be there? Jesus is not afraid to meet us in the places where we're trying to hide. Take that to heart. Well, then he begins to talk to her. And she continues to hide and, and sort of put up a barrier. After he begins to, to talk to her a little bit, then she tries to hide by deflecting his questions 
and, and getting into a theological debate. <laughs> you know, sometimes theological debates are really about keeping God at arm's length. They are sometimes. Nobody does theology in a vacuum. Usually there's a story behind the things that bother us about the Bible. And sometimes we don't want to let people know the story because it's too painful. Sometimes we'd rather just argue about ideas. But I find that it's hard to get very far in your relationship with Jesus if you never talk about your story and you just stay up on the level of arguing about ideas. So what does Jesus do, right? He pursues her. (laughs) He pursues her. How? How does he pursue her? Well, he uses questions to draw out her longings and expose what she's done with them. But he does it in such a gentle way. That's why I wanted to read Isaiah 42. It says about Jesus, the Messiah, in that servant song, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Is that how you think of Jesus? As the one who is so gentle that even if you're like the candle that's just smoldering, Jesus is so gentle that even that smoldering wick will not be put out. See, Jesus knows how to pursue us in the way we need to pursue. We saw last week, he pursues Nicodemus by starting an argument with him. But he pursues this woman by probing questions that gently but persistently touch her at the point of shame and make her have to, to own it to get really in touch with longings that are deeper than she realized she even had, right? I love one of the old Puritans said it this way, God breaketh not all hearts alike. One of the things you see about Jesus in the Gospels is the way he just has this remarkable creativity in the way he pursues people. Like I said, with Nicodemus, he starts an argument. With this woman, she tries to start an argument, and he deflects it and goes right to the heart issue. Right to the heart issue. And that's good news, I think, for all of us who are trying to hide from Jesus, that he is this relentless pursuer. But the question is worth asking, why does he pursue her? And Jesus tells us, and I love this, I love this. He says, why? Because the Father is seeking worshipers. I love this line from John Piper. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. The the reason that we should share our faith is not so that we'll get God off our back and so that he'll like us more. It's because We were made to glorify God, enjoy him forever. And where we see places where people are not worshiping the one true God, the gentle Savior who relentlessly pursues people, where we see that breakdown, which is dehumanizing. Because what it means to be truly human and to truly flourish is to worship the one true God who made us for himself. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. The reason we want to share the good news of the gospel is because we want to see people restored to the dignity of what it means to be truly human and worshiping 
in a beautiful, open, and honest relationship with the one who made them. I don't know if that's the way it's been explained to you, but that's what the Bible says. Jack Miller, a great um, pastor who's went on to be with the Lord, used to say, you know, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It doesn't take experts. It doesn't take people with theology degrees. And that's what, that's what you see here with her, right? Well, what does Jesus offer her? What does Jesus offer her? He offers her living water. And that's really fascinating. You know, I think a lot of us have, have sort of been taught that if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, you need to talk to people about how they're guilty and they need to be forgiven for their sins. And that's all true, but Jesus never says a thing about that in this encounter. Just a little disturbing to some people, particularly if you think like evangelism is like this kind of cookie cutter thing. I think of it more as improvisation. Um, and what you see here, Jesus does not make his approach about her guilt, even though her guilt is real. He doesn't make it about her wrong ideas about God and worship, though she's wrong about some things. He doesn't shy away from that. But what he digs into is her longings. You know, we all live with longings. I know I'm one who would rather kill my longings rather than face them, right? And there are some religions, particularly Buddhism, Stoicism, that suggest that that's the best way to get through life, that longings make you vulnerable, make you able to be hurt, and the best way to protect yourself is to kill your longings. Others, you know, the the old philosophy was called Epicureanism, you want a fancy philosophical term, but it's a, a philosophy that you might know as well, um, said that really you worship your longings, that longings are really what you were made for. In, in some ways, that's like the culture of advertising that surrounds us and presses in us all the time, right? You remember those silly um, Visa commercials um, that were basically like, you know, this experience with your son going to the World Series game, you know, priceless. All the priceless things in the in those commercials were things that you had to do spontaneously, so you're going to need a credit card. You could never, like, save for them or plan for them, right? But it's the idea that, like, these experiences are everything there is to life. And um, and so that's the kind of the idea that longings are everything, and and you should... Do anything and everything to live for and to worship your longings. Here's what Christianity teaches. Neither one of those things. Christianity teaches that we're to be a steward of our longings. A steward of our longings. They're powerful and wonderful gifts that draw us farther up and deeper in. I mean, do you ever think about it? Why did God make us in a way that we would thirst and get hungry. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in the hearts of all mankind, this longing for something more, yet he has kept us from being able to figure out the beginning from the end. In other words, he's put this longing for eternity in your hearts, but he's going to frustrate your ability to kind of figure it all out. You have to learn what it means to be dependent upon God. It's what he made us for, even in the garden. And we keep resisting wanting to be dependent beings, 
We want to be independent. I think some people even use Christianity as a, a new way to try and be independent. Like, I just want to learn about, you know, the gospel so that I won't be needy anymore. <laughs> you know, I just want to get the gospel so that I can just kind of get my act together and, 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 and not be such a screw up or not be, you know, such a pathetic, you know, uh, person. Listen, God made us to be dependent, right? He's given us longing. He's given it to us. C.S. Lewis called this the inconsolable secret. And he spoke about it in this sermon called Transposition. I actually posted this quote on the group me, right? But I want to read it, um, at least a part of it, um, tonight. Lewis says this, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that settled the matter. Yet the books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of the worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. Jesus exposes her longings. And one of the ways he does it is by showing us what we really need in what he offers. See, we really learn a lot about what we really need by seeing what Jesus offers. He doesn't come to us and say, tell me what you need. I'm here to meet your needs. He comes to teach us about what we need, and what he offers is what we need, even if we've become disconnected from our true needs. And there's lots of ways that that can happen. Pain, trauma, distraction. Jesus says you need living water that, that would satisfy us. And it's actually something God's been teaching his people for a long, long time. What is living water? Do you know what living water is? Living water is not stagnant water. It's running water. And it's the kind of water that would make um, anybody who knew the first five books of the Bible, like this woman, think about Exodus 17. The time when Moses stood before the rock. God said, I'm going to give water to the people. And he said to Moses, stand before the rock. 
I will stand before you. You will strike the rock with the staff, the staff being the staff of judgment that he used to bring the plagues upon Israel or upon Egypt. I'm going to strike the rock. You're going to strike the rock, Moses, by striking me. And as you strike through me, you're going to hit the rock and streams of living water are going to burst forth. See, even back there in Exodus 17, God is teaching that the only way to get living water is for God himself to be struck with the judgment staff of God. That's what she needs, right? And, and, and Jesus actually makes this really clear. Literally, verse 26 is, I am... I, sorry, I that am talking to you, I am. That's odd English. So, right? So we say, you know, I who speak to you am he is the way it says in the translation that I read. But literally in the Greek, it says, I that am talking to you, I am. What is I am? I am is the name of God that he revealed to his people at the burning bush. That's the name, the the personal name of God that he gives his people. And Jesus is saying to this woman who knows the first five books of the Bible, who knows this story of Exodus 17, I am is here to give you this living water. That which was pictured at the rock. And who does he offer it to? (laughs) Well, he offers it to everyone, but it tastes sweetest to those who are broken. You know, Nicodemus, we're not quite sure if he's interested. He leaves, and we don't know what happens, though we know later on that he finally comes around. But she gets it more quickly, doesn't she? And then what what does Jesus do? He sends her to go talk to people. Isn't it amazing? I think Jesus astonishes us when we see the kind of people that he calls to be his witnesses. She's a sinful woman, a social outcast, a victim of an unjust world and society, and she has bad theology. But Jesus actually makes himself needy in her presence, pursues her relentlessly, yet still gently, and she gets it and brings her whole village to faith in Jesus. When she realizes who he is, Her life is turned upside down. No longer is she avoiding all the people from her village. Now she goes into the village. Let me tell you about this one I've met. It's changed everything. I'm no longer afraid to face you people because this one, this one considered me important enough not only to talk to, but to give living water to. Living water. I mean, you see this great picture of, of, you know, Dan Allender talks about every one of us has this story war at work in our lives. Who gets to narrate your story? There are a lot of people that would tell stories about who you are and why you matter or don't matter. But Jesus says to this woman, you're my disciple. You're my child. I'm going to give you this living water. And she goes back to people who tell very different story about her who have a very different perception of who she is. And she says, I don't care. I met someone. Let me tell you about this guy I met. Let me tell you about this guy. 
And it strikes them, right? They can tell something is up. And they want to figure out what it's about. And they come to figure it out. They come to Jesus. They come, all right, I want to be around this guy. The disciples are, are amazed, right? Like, what's, what's going on here? What's going on here is Jesus is God in the flesh seeking worshipers. And Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of my Father. I don't need to eat. I don't need to eat. I'm about the work of my Father in, in seeking worshipers. It's fascinating. You wouldn't know this unless you read a Bible commentary, but about 10 miles from this well stood a temple to Caesar Augustus with a big inscription that said, Caesar Augustus, the Savior of the world. But now these Samaritans recognize the true Savior is here, right? God is still seeking worshipers, pursuing them wherever they hide. Um, I was going to tell you a story about one of my favorite movies, but I think I'll cut to the, 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 this story about the runaway bunny. Do you know that little children's book? It's a great movie sometime you should watch called Wit, W-I-T, with Emma Thompson. She's an English professor uh, in this movie who is an expert in John Donne uh, and his sonnets, particularly the sonnet, Death Be Not Proud, which if you've never read is worth reading. It's powerful. Um, she's an expert in this sonnet, but she doesn't really understand the spiritual significance. And then she gets cancer. And the movie really is about God pursuing her even through her cancer. I will tell you, trigger warning, it's an intense movie. I used to show it and we'd do like a, a wellness or well core event, what they used to call convo. Um, but at the end of this movie, nobody wants to talk. You just kind of want to sit in your thoughts. So I'm just giving you a heads up. But what happens at the very end of this movie, she's, she's basically on her deathbed, and her mentor comes to, to see her. And she can barely talk, but she says, you know, would you read to me? And, and her older mentor um, looks down, and there's this children's book, The Runaway Bunny. And she flips through it, and she says, oh, it's a little allegory of the soul. And so it is. The runaway bunny, a little bunny, you know this story? Little bunny wants to run away, right, from his mom and says, I'm running away. And the mom says, if you run away, I'll run after you because you're my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I'll become a fish in a trout stream and I'll swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I'll become a fisherman and I'll fish for you. And he goes on through all these various plans, right? Each time the mommy foils his idea, finally he says this, well, I guess I'll become a little boy and run into a house. If you become a little boy and run into a house, said the mother bunny, I'll become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. Shuck, said the bunny. I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And so he did. Have a carrot, said the mother bunny. It's a little allegory of the soul. It's a beautiful picture of the way Jesus pursues us. He's relentless. So why don't you just stay where you are and be found? Right? We spend so much energy trying to run. And if he set his sights on us, he's not going to be dissuaded. You can't put up barriers that will keep him at bay for long. 
And why would you want to? Why would you want to? Let's pray.